Kelsey Mullen is the Public Programs Coordinator at the Mount in Lenox, Massachusetts, Edith Wharton's home for 10 years, mm -hmm. the early part of the 1900s. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Well, thank you for having me. First off, why should the literary tourists come to the Mount? Well, I think, I think as with any writer, of course you have the diehards, the enthusiasts for whom that author's work particularly moves them. Um, and so certainly Wharton enthusiasts should come and make their pilgrimage to the Mount. I think again and again we find that um, people who really like Wharton come here and have an experience unlike what they were expecting. And it's a really moving experience for many, many people. And um, So why is that? I think it's the Newman of the thing. It's being in the place where the house of mirth was created from conception through execution. Um, and, and, that's, and that's moving. Or to be in the home of Edith Wharton, who has a, a very colorful biography and whose story is inspiring for many writers, particularly women writers. At the time, she was the best paid author, male mm -hmm. or female. In, um, in the United States. Yes. She experienced the rare blend of critical and popular success. Uh, her, her books were very, very well received by the press, especially you know her, her breakout novel, The House of Mirth, while at the same time folks were lining up around the block to buy the next installment of Scribner so that they could follow along with the story. It was the best-selling book of 1905, uh, far and away, although it had only been published in October of that year. Beat out every book published. Was it put out originally in a magazine format? Most of Wharton's early work was published serially in Scribner's magazine. And so two or three chapters would be published each month, usually lasting anywhere between six and 11 months. Um, and then at the end, the, the hardcover novel would, have, would be published. Okay. Yeah. And, that's, and that's how people had access to her early material, although there was quite a bit of revision and editing that happened between the magazine publication and, and the novel publication. Okay. She was a constant... Uh, revisionist and going back to her own work, even in um, the, the final published copy, the first editions of her own books, you'll see markings and she's crossing out lines and changing word choice and um, really just couldn't let it go. A bit um, like W.H. Auden in that regard. She, she was very, very self-critical and always striving to, to really present the best work that she could. And I think that dedication really served her well throughout her career. And while I think she certainly was a pioneering female author. She really was graduating with sort of the, the new publishing industry and figuring out the ins and outs of it. She was really one of the foremost authors in the world at the time. Plus uh, an, an accomplished uh, businesswoman. Absolutely. She, um, I think, had had a few experiences early on in her life, particularly with respect to her, her inheritance from her father. She received a good sum of money, but she wasn't allowed to manage her own trust fund. Uh, her brothers were given control of her inheritance, and through a very complicated legal back and forth, she eventually uh, resumed control of her own finances, but that was that took most of her lifetime. And so these formative experiences where she was really striving for independence and, and wanted to control her own future, yeah. uh, but was denied that opportunity, really influenced the way she approached the business of publishing. And, and, and a detail I find so important is when she divorced her husband, Teddy Wharton, in 1913. She was a very independent woman in her own right at the time. Divorce back then was bordering on scandalous. Oh, absolutely. It was, it was definitely uncommon. 
and not uh, not something that was encouraged among women of any class. But she, the, the marriage really had dissolved, and she was in a position. She was a privileged yeah, woman. She had independence. She was in the position to to leave an unhappy marriage, and really, all she wanted from her husband in, in the divorce was the ability to keep the name Edith Wharton. Because that was how she made her living. That was her professional name. And so she made no overtures to, you know, his assets or to setting up some some kind of trust so that she could be comfortable for the rest of her life. Really, she was ready to walk away from that marriage with only the name. So courage and Mm -hmm. uh, confidence. Yes, and and a confidence, I think, that was bred in, in a very particular time and a place. We always have to remember that Edith Wharton was born into a privileged household and sort of maintained that status throughout her lifetime. She made tremendous strides and and advancements uh, throughout her life, but it was always positioned from a place of of privilege and and class status. You you mentioned that and her bridling at uh, her brothers perhaps getting better treatment than she did. That's exactly how Virginia Woolf felt about her situation and the fact that she couldn't go to university. Mm-hmm. Was there a connection between the two of them at all? You know, we've had many scholars come through who are scholars of Woolf or Cather, and they want to know if Wharton was in conversation or had encounters with these with these other famous authors of her of her day. And as far as we're able to tell, Wharton really didn't. She read their work here and there, but she didn't keep company with other female writers, especially during the period of her life when she was the most famous and the most productive. Um, She really kept a close circle of male colleagues and mentors and acquaintances. Um, And I think that was partially because these were the individuals who were lauded for their achievements. I mean, men were were at the top of every field, um, and she felt that they were her intellectual equals. But she felt that women were not? I think that she had always felt under-challenged from from childhood onwards, and she wasn't really expected to seek out challenge, and that Mm. was something that she defied throughout her lifetime, Mm. constantly looking for somebody to push back on this really incredible intellect that she possessed. Uh, But she was a difficult person to know. I think she was reserved and aloof at first. Henry James didn't like her Mm -hmm. when they first met. He thought that she was very cold. And yet they became very, very good friends. Lifelong. Lifelong friends. So you had to push through that steely reserve. And I don't know that she ever really made that connection with another woman. Okay. So the literary tourist who is enamored with... Mm -hmm. Edith Wharton would come here for inspiration. I mean, just just looking over this gorgeous landscape reminds me a bit of that movie, uh, the Kenneth Branagh version of Much Ado About Nothing, (laughs) where they were Mm -hmm. dancing around in the mazes and such. Mm -hmm. So they'd come here, and what kind of feedback do you get from these, these fans? The feedback from from Wharton enthusiasts when they come here, I think, is that they get a better sense of who Wharton was as a person. I think we too often have the tendency with any writer to sort of hold them apart from their work, and we tend to be much more familiar with the protagonists in uh, in their pages than with the the creator of those characters. And this is a place where we really try to make Wharton a three-dimensional human being who was complicated and complex and contradictory and, and really tried to get everybody from, you know, the 
the Wharton scholar to the sort of um, unfamiliar to, to really understand who Wharton was and why that is important in her work. And how do you do that with place? Place is so important, especially with respect to Wharton. We call this the Mount an autobiographical house. Uh, Wharton lived here for a relatively short period of her life, for about 10 years, between 1902 and 1911, summer residence. And one could make the argument that for such a short period in her life, you know, how, why is this the place where you come when you want to know Wharton? But the 10 years that Wharton spent at the Mount were really the most transformational years of her life. The Wharton who comes in 1902 and the Wharton who leaves in 1911 are two very different people. Mm. And the Edith Wharton we remember and have canonized uh, was really born here at the Mount. She, mm. she came relatively unknown as a writer, unpublished really. She was ill, su- probably suffering from depression that was manifesting itself in a number of physical ways. Perhaps because of the unhappy marriage. Because perhaps. she was in this this marriage that really wasn't stimulating or satisfying in any regard. And she had no real literary community to, to speak of. But she comes here to, to Lennox and she creates the Mount, this home that was the only home she ever built for herself. The first place she really called home. Well, and as you say, creates is the right word because it, she's uh, implementing a lot of the ideas that she's built up about place, about mm-hmm. structure, about house, right. how you, why certain things should be symmetrical or simple. or Exactly. She had lived her whole life to that point, and she builds the mount right around her 40th birthday. Mm. She had a lifetime of accumulated knowledge and opinions um, about what made a good home and what made a, a satisfying and restorative place. Um, and she was finally able to put these ideas into practice um, and create for herself a writer's retreat unlike anything else she had ever experienced or ever would experience in her lifetime. A writer's retreat meaning her being the writer. Exactly. Yeah. And she had this vision um, and had had since she was a very young girl of writing um, mm. and, and seeing herself as a writer. And it was only after she built the mount that she really became a professional writer. So she builds the mount. She builds the space where she can call mm. up these creative reserves and focus on this impulse that she's always had. Mm. And within three years, she writes The House of Mirth, which becomes the best-selling book of 1905 and makes her the highest-paid author in the United States. And so that is when Edith Wharton, the professional writer, is born. Mm. And over the next several years, uh, during her time here at the Mount, she goes on to continued literary success. She finally builds this this network uh, and community of writers and mentors around her. Um, she has her first, and as far as we know, only love affair uh, with Morton Fullerton. She travels the world and eventually leaves an unhappy marriage and she she leaves uh, for France in 1911 really uh, it's a permanent relocation but the time here at the mount totally changed her well the the point is too it seems to me that she had money to start with so she had enough money to build this beautiful place she needs to build a place in which she can feel comfortable enough to actually produce this great work of literature. I also think that she was 
maturing. She she began to care less about what other people thought of her. She lived here throughout her 40s, and I think mm. she was casting off sort of this childish and younger version of herself that wanted to please her mother so very badly and um, be what everyone expected her to be. She leaves mm. that behind and finally is able to realize who she truly is mm-hmm. um, and or who she wants to be and to become. And she's able to do that, I mean, certainly through some fortitude within herself, but also, I mean, she had tremendous support, which I think is important to remember. In her autobiography, A Backward Glance, uh, which was written at the end of her life, and she is really looking back at a life lived, but it's a very censored autobiography. Written for the public. Written for the public, yeah. absolutely. It's a work of fiction just like anything else she wrote, yeah. really. Yeah. Well, um, they all are, I guess. Aren't they? And she paints a very cold picture of her childhood, an unsupportive mother, really no resources, um, and that's how we thought of her childhood for many, many years because there was no scholarship to contradict that, that portrait of her, of her younger years. Mm-hmm. Um, but we know now, through the publication of private letters and so forth, um, that she had actually a good deal of support from her parents. And uh, she had a governess, Anna Ballman, from the age of 12, uh, and really until she was married, who was constantly pushing her and giving her new work and uh, introducing new ideas and getting her to, to exercise these these impulses she had. And then throughout her adult years as well, she, she did have uh, people who were guiding her and helping her mm-hmm. to become a great writer. And so I think one of the greatest fictions Edith Wharton ever told was that she was a self-made writer. And I think that that may be the case with, with many authors. They're, they're not created in a vacuum. So the feedback you get then from, from people that come here is primarily... People get many different things from their experience here at the Met. We've talked a little bit about the Wharton enthusiast who comes here and, and writers who are coming specifically to become to get closer to Edith Wharton and the creative process. How do they do that, though? I mean, if the skeptic will say, it's just a bloody house, it's got nothing to do with my imaginative engagement to that with I, the book, yeah, with to, the novels. And, and, I, and I think that that is a valid perspective. However... This is the power of museums, um, that it brings us closer to the actual thing. To be in front of a copy of the Gutenberg Bible or the Declaration of Independence. Yes, of course, we've seen reproductions and we've, we can read them online, mm-hmm. but it's not the same thing as being close to the thing yourself. And it activates, I think, one's imagination in a new way yeah. that that complements maybe your previous experience but ultimately helps it grow and and that is the value i think in visiting these places and and walking through the rooms and you know just becoming familiar with the material in a different way uh, the physicality of being in the same space breathing the same air absolutely we can look at postcards of you know, Venice, but is it the same thing as, as yeah. walking the canals? Yeah. Not really. Or, yeah, can you appreciate the color of the water exactly. without actually seeing it? I think what brings people back and creates sort of a, a community community at the Mount is that not only do we tell Edith Wharton's story, but the Mount is actively engaged in sort of the contemporary conversations about literature mm-hmm. and writing and what it means to be a writer or a researcher today. Um, and so we have a wonderful um, roster of, of programs, 
and events that bring people back multiple times each year. Um, you know, you can tour the house, of course, that, that, that's never going to change, but to offer other experiences here and to bring the conversation current uh, because of course writing is not something that that died in 1911 when Edith Wharton left here. In fact that's the you know, one of the, the wonderful things about literature isn't it? it? It's new for each generation that follows. Exactly it's constantly evolving um, and the last thing we want to be is a shrine that never changes. Mm. This is a place where we invite debate and conversation and dialogue. I think you, you know. do want to be a shrine in the sense that you want to try and be as authentic to the period and the in the time that she was here as you can be. But as you say, what? You want it to be alive, I suppose. Exactly. Um, of course we want to be authentic. That is a commitment we, we make on a number of different fronts. But this place needs to be a vibrant, active, thriving place for Edith Wharton's vision to continue to feel relevant um, to us all. And what was her vision? She imagined a place where where writing and the creation of ideas was valued and and people engaged with those ideas. Um, and she designed it in such a way that would facilitate that. Absolutely. You know, this it's sort of it's contradictory in some ways that she created this as a retreat and here we are throwing open yeah, the doors yeah. and inviting people here. But in many ways the mount and, and the surrounding property acts as a retreat from, you know, the hustle and bustle of downtown Lenox yeah. or um, a retreat for some people who are journeying farther than that from New York or, you know, from the West Coast. This is a place that still has sort of a quietness about it that, that invites reflection and in, encourages even conversation specifically about um, the literary process. And the, Edith Wharton once said that the air of ideas was the only air worth breathing. And I could not agree more. That phrase really inspires the programming that we offer here at the Mount and inspires the way that we interpret Wharton's life. Now, can people come here and, and they, they don't stay here, they just kind of come for the day? Exactly. We've, we've actually had many requests that, uh, for, for people who would like to, to sleep over yeah. at the Mount. Right now, that is not an option. Okay. Um, but they can obviously stay in what, nearby and come here yes, several days exactly. in a row if they wish to. Um, of course, the, the Berkshires is a destination for many, and yeah. um, there, there is quite a... a spate of things to do while you're here at the Mount being just one of many cultural offerings. But, yeah. well, and uh, literary uh, things too, of course. There's Melville's Arrowhead and there's uh, St. Vincent. Uh, Millet, yep. Millet um, around the corner. But the Mount, we're really trying, um, especially this season, to really extend the hours that were open to give okay. people a greater opportunity to come here um, and to allow different constituent groups access to them, really creating avenues of access, most importantly. So we open at 10 in the morning, and then almost every day of the week during July and August, we have some program in the late afternoon and evening hours. You know, on Wednesdays at 5 p.m., we have a wonderful reading series on the terrace uh, where local actors who are otherwise engaged at Shakespeare and Company or Berkshire Theater Festival or Williamstown Theater Festival come and they read Wharton's short stories. It's a very popular series. On Thursday evenings, um, we are free from 5 until 8 p.m. and offering a number of different programs in partnership with our community partners, like the Lennox Community Center, 
um, and so forth to invite our neighbors in really who might work nine to five and don't get an opportunity to come out a chance to experience them out and create their own memories here uh, we have a wonderful music series on Friday and Saturday night so really just this idea that there's always something happening here and that you can come for a number of different activities uh, and that the Mount is a community resource. Final question. What is your favorite, not just the novel, but what's, what's the most important piece of wisdom that you've been able to get from your reading of Wharton? I think what makes Wharton's work so enduring and relevant in 2013 is that she had wonderful, such keen insight into human relationships. And while things like marriage and divorce have changed um, and and certain customs of the day uh, in 1900 are no longer really applicable to our lives now, the fundamental human relationships haven't, okay, what, haven't changed. What about them? What's her message? Wharton is, is so often maligned for being sort of a dour writer that it's all doom and gloom with her. Um, she's compared to Jane Austen, uh, I think both because they're both female novelists of the 19th century, but um, but really they couldn't be more different in the way they approach things at the end of, you know... They're about 100 years apart. Right, know. exactly. Yeah. I mean, 19th century, very loosely. Yeah, okay. Um, and... You know, at the end of an Austin novel, everybody sort of pairs off and skips down the country lane, and it's great. Wharton's message, I think, is one of melancholy and the opportunity not taken and the, the feeling of being constrained by other people's expectations, doing the right thing for others but not necessarily doing the right thing for yourself. And that is an experience she certainly grappled with in her lifetime, and I think people still grapple with that in their own ways today, doing what's expected of you or not. Selfish or selfless. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and and whether or not your needs are, are more important than somebody else's or that you'll be able to realize your, your dreams at the expense of somebody else, that the constant is is a persistent theme in her work and I think in ways large and small um, you or I or just a casual visitor to the mount can apply that same tension um, and can see that same tension as a, as a thread in their own lives. Beautifully put. Thanks so much for uh, providing us a storyline with which to come to the mount. Oh, it's my pleasure. I've been speaking with Kelsey Mullen, who is the uh, program coordinator at the mount in uh, Lenox, Massachusetts, between Springfield and Albany, basically, in the Berkshires. Mm -hmm. Between the Berkshire Mountains and the Taconic Mountains.